Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. Hey, how's it growing, friends? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. My name is Keisha, and I am your co-moderator today, if I can say that word. Mandy, how you doing? Oh my gosh, I am so good. We're here for episode 59, the last show for March. Wow, you guys, what a month. But you know the drill, we're going live over on YouTube. So if you're logging on over there, make sure you send us your questions and I'll get those over to the team. Make sure you're following us on all the social medias. So that's Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. But this is a big day for us. We actually have a very special guest grower on the show. So I'm going to throw it back over to Keisha for our introductions. Fantastic, Mandy. All right, before I get to who's on the show, if you're live with us here and have a question, feel free to type it in the chat at any time. And if your question gets picked, we'll either have you unmute yourself or we can ask for you. Jason and Seth, how's it going over there? Yeah, good to see y'all. All right, who do we have on the show today? Yeah, we're thankful and honored to have Ellie Coyne, the Chief Operating Officer at East Coast Gear. Fantastic. Yeah, Ellie's my girl. Yeah, um, Ellie is amazing. She is growing some amazing stuff with her partner, Dylan, out there at East Coast Cure. Um, They're really holding down the growth scene out there in Maine. Um, But yeah, we're super excited to have her on the show. Um, A couple people are joining us, but um, yeah, Ellie, welcome. Oh, you're on mute. First podcast. First, uh, first technical issue. Awesome. Glad to accomplish that one and knock, knock that off my uh, bucket list. But uh, yeah, super happy to be here with y'all. Um, you know, we've been rocking with Arroya for a bit and uh, happy to answer any of y'all's questions, tell y'all my story. Love chatting up with the crew. Thank you guys for being here also. Yeah, well, um, we're here for all of your story. Um, I've actually been able to dip a little bit into it because um, I was on the uh, East Coast Cure case study tour and I got to interview you already. Um, But yeah, if uh, without further ado, do you guys want to jump right into uh, asking Ellie a couple questions about her experience? Cool. I didn't mean to cut you guys off if you guys wanted to say something, Um, but I'm super excited to have you on the show, Ellie. Um, Yeah, so at East Coast Cure, you guys grow a lot. You guys are like kind of pioneers in the industry with your tissue culture lab, but I want to go back to your backstory. How did you really get started? Oh man, that's a long, long story, but, um, you know, I'm originally from North Carolina. That's still, you know, a very illegal state to operate in, um, consume in and all that fun stuff. But I grew up having, you know, I grew up in an advertising agency with my father and my grandfather. So being on the artistic journey was kind of always my trajectory, but never really felt quite, you know, 100% fulfilling until I um, flew up to Maine about 10 years ago. And, you know, I'd always consumed cannabis. It's always been definitely something that like, stuck with me for a very long time you know since middle school even and um having to kind of like live in the shadows and dodge the you know 
legality in a lot of different ways. Um, my first like real exposure to growing and what cannabis really brings to, you know, the world was like visiting a real bona fide grow up in Northern Maine. Um, I was kind of like a kid in a candy shop. I saw um, an old airplane hanger that was revamped into a cannabis grow. And I'm like, seeing teams buzz around. And like, that was my first kind of inclination was like, wow, this is a real thriving industry up here. You know, and I was, you know, sheltered from this for a majority of my adulthood. And then coming up here and just seeing what's possible really blew my mind. And I like think after I saw that first cultivation uh, facility, it stuck with me. And I'm the type of person, once I have my mindset to something, this is what I'm going to do. And it clicked, it resonated, it merged my creative side with my analytical side and just, wow, I need to know everything about how to grow this plant. I love the final product at such a young age. And I need to know now, how is this grown? And seeing that it was a thriving business up here in Maine in particular really sparked my interest. And I honestly couldn't get enough. <laughs> I feel like we all have that story about going into our first grow and um, yeah, just having that moment. Um, so I was right there with you reliving that. Um, amazing. So when did you link up with Dylan? Um, how did that start? Yeah, so you know, being from such a precarious, you know, beginnings where most of it was lived, you know, in the shadows, you don't talk much about what you're doing. Then finally getting to the point, you know, we're living in a legal state doing real bona fide, you know, cultivation type stuff. I was finally able to like get on social media, connect on um, Instagram, on forums, back in the day, farms were gold, so much golden knowledge back there. Um, and then like nowadays, Instagram is kind of where most of our information thrives, you know, but that's where I met Dylan. I feel like about seven or eight years ago. So it was a while ago and we connected on like in a comment section and we started following each other and then we started following each other's journeys and, um, you know, he had a really fabulous, humble size grow up here in Maine. Uh, he followed me all the way from closet grows, basement grows. Um, God knows what else grows. Um, but he followed me all the way up until I was actually working a legitimate facility, uh, about 40,000 square foot canopy grow. And, you know, uh, he was working to expand. I was working with a company that was expanding and I wasn't fully, you know, thriving there. And he really wanted someone to experience up here to help him develop his company a little bit further and get to the level that, you know, we're at now. So we, like I said, Instagram, we connected through, through social media. <laughs> 
Social media is so powerful for this industry. Isn't it amazing? Like just the connections that come from that. Um, so Ellie, let's talk about your facility. What are you, what are you dealing with out there in Maine? And uh, yeah, maybe you could bring in Seth and Jason and talk about like those specifics, uh, your day to day as a COO. Yeah, so our facility here, you know, it's a really modest, we have a humble facility up here. We got about, what, 100 grow lights going. Definitely um, seen bigger, I've worked bigger, but, you know, I left those operations to get back to doing smaller scale stuff to really produce quality. Because at the end of the day, that's why I got into this field is to to solely produce quality medicine for people, including myself. And um, I saw that here with Dylan and East Coast Cure, he was on the precipice already at such a young age of introducing, you know, technologies such as Arroyo and, you know, switching up nutrients and crop steering technology that people and strategies, irrigation strategies that people were actively doing where I was operating at and it was very refreshing and you know coming up here seeing what you know this modest facility is putting out you know that definitely stuck but you know we're currently operating with about a hundred a hundred lights nothing too crazy but um we have big hopes for the future and scaling at a reasonable rate that we're comfortable with with the amount of people that we have on staff, on hand, not getting too big, too quick. Um, but, you know, we have our two flower rooms, a bedroom, mom room, and then we also operate a tissue culture facility as well. Since you're running tissue culture, like let's, I would love to talk about genetics for a second. Um, what kind of heat are you bring out there in Maine? What's going on? Oh man, we're self-proclaimed genetic junkies. I mean, we can't collect enough genetics. Um, and so we honestly, we developed our tissue culture out of necessity for ourselves. Uh, we have about 250 proprietary genetics that we've sourced from, you know, all across the world. And we want to protect those. and. The best way for us to do that is putting them into tissue culture. So we teamed up with a partner out west. Dylan's also very well versed on tissue culture. Um, and we started banking genetics. And then when we started banking our own genetics, we got a lot of interest in other people wanting to bank genetics and then cleaning, like cleaning of genetics, you know, hop hop latent viroid is running rampant through the cannabis, you know, community. So this is definitely a way to circumvent that and also a solution to getting down to the molecular form of cannabis to produce verified clean genetics, which is very important to us. Um, Mandy, you've been to our facility. You see, we dress out, we, anybody that comes in, we're in hair nuds, boots, everything, you know, we're it's like clean. The, the most high-tech clean facility I think that I've stepped into. So, yeah. Yeah. So we, we put a lot of our emphasis on keeping clean, very sterile environments that, you know, keep our genetics safe. 
<laughs> but um, breeding wise, we have uh, we've been breeding for about four or five years and um, keeping that under wraps until this year. We're finally ready and able to start releasing some of those genetics. That's so exciting. Oh, my gosh. So um, can you give us kind of an idea of the kind of genetics that you guys have in your catalog or? Yeah, of course. Um, so we have a pretty particular pheno of blue cookies, which is a particular phenotype of Girl Scout cookies, which was found from bag seed about 11 years ago out in Cali by our um, good buddy, Turkey Bag. And um, we've been holding on to that for a while. It's a very specific uh, terpene profile. It grows a certain way. It's not, you can't Google this blue cookies yet. <laughs> um, it's a very specific gassy, earthy. It shines silver when you put a light to it with like deep blue undertones. Is we're really um, that's our that's our staple. We love this cut. We might be a little selfish in only breeding this cut just because it is such a potent body hitting medicinal um, cross that just resonates with so many different type of patients that we see, and you know we cross that with our entire genetic library. So we are just sitting on mountains of seeds of these. So we've been pheno hunting for the past few years, just trying to find those winners, just trying to put some new, good, really medicinal forward genetics out there for our consumers. Oh my gosh, that sounded amazing the way you described that. Yeah, it is. I, I, I use it. I love it. <laughs> That sounds amazing. Um, so you're dealing with tissue culture, you're dealing with uh, a, an environment that's very, very much all about craft cannabis. So consistency and that quality is key. Like talk to us about how Arroya helps you um, with some of the benefits you're getting out of the platform. Oh Lord, Arroya has helped us tremendously throughout our expansion as a company. You know, we're expanding we have multiple retail shops that we're currently you know building out um so you want to take a step away and you know i'm a self-admitted kind of control freak so i want to know what's happening in my garden i 100 trust my grower but like you know i i still need to know so keeping 360 eyes on what's happening in our garden is always top priority. Um, but yeah, consistency up here. Being in the main market, we have a very heavy concentrated area of phenomenal growers. And you can't afford to flop on one round. You flop on one round, that could be detrimental to your brand, to your business. Um, so using Arroyo to keep that consistent, to know what strains we need to keep dialed in, um, is extremely important to us as a company. Okay. We're all about that. Um, Seth, Jason, I feel like we're just going to take over the interview. I, 
answering or asking all the good questions. So, no, okay. Well, I'm going to pass it to you guys. Come on, Ellie. Maybe you'll talk to us a little bit about what what are some of the metrics during cultivation that you're looking at to highlight the best strains. Yeah, of course. Um, metrics, you know, are extremely important, especially when you're running a, you know, big facility. And I found that most other grows that I was at, it was always a uh, pick the block up and see if it feels heavy, see if it feels, you know, put your finger in it. Never anything real black or white. There was never really any sort of straight data that could help influence how we grow a certain cultivar. Um, Having the ability to really like zero that in, super important to what we're doing. Super important, building recipes for cultivar, very important. Um, I would say that we're majority, the majority of the time, our growers are just crunching data. We're facilitators. I would say the plant grows itself. We literally are just the facilitators. Um, and having that 360 global view of what is happening in your media is so important. And um, most of us people from coming from cultivation, we learned our stuff from Farmer John, Uncle Tony, whoever the hell, whoever the heck. And um, having real numbers to quantify and have historical data on what we're trying to accomplish just makes our view 360 instead of 50%, you know, 50%. You can put your eyes on a plant and say, sure, that looks good, but what the heck is happening in the media? And um, I remember a few years ago when I first got introduced to Arroyo uh, by Ramsey and Dylan here at East Coast Care, I was, you know, I remember the first time hearing all these stats. And I'm just like, mind boggling. Wow. This is like turning of a, you know, turning it in a completely different chapter. You're in a different book now. Now you're able to actually dial in crop steer and get the desired results. The numbers are there. It's up to you. So two-part two question in relation to uh, what you're talking about right now, and that is uh, how long do you usually get to run a strain for as, as far as how many different runs? Um, you know, in previous episodes, we talked about, hey, you know, our ability to get the best of this product is pretty short-lived based on market demand. So yeah, first definitely. question, how many runs do you usually get to run uh, out of a good solid strain that you get? And do you develop a, a benchmark run that uh, you compare all the harvests after that against? Oh, absolutely. Every single run that we do, I'm, I'm really hard on our stuff too. Like if it's not hitting numbers, we got to do a retake on that. We got to see what's going on. But I'd say that like us personally, we're running these cultivars at least three times. We're running, we're running them at least three times so we can at least gather some historical data on what's possible with this strain. Um, you know, and again, these are just numbers. So a big part of it also comes from terpene profiles, bag appeal, all the aesthetic type stuff, which, you know, we're finding is also, we can obtain through steering 
um, as well. So you can steer for yield. You can steal, you can steer for, uh, quality. You can steer for a lot of different ways. And, you know, we're to the point now, you know, it's like, yeah, yields are great, but if you're not dialing that in and steering to a specific like quality, you're going to be done. You might as well, you know, pack up and leave the conversation, <laughs> uh, especially in our market specifically and our brand specifically. I only want stuff that I know I'm going to roll up and I'm going to smack myself. Gotcha. I guess I've got one. Um, how much easier are you finding it to replicate those runs and also, you know, take that time. I know previously in my experience, we'd pheno hunt, you'd introduce it to maybe part of a zone, you get a certain expression, right? And then you go, okay, we're right. going to blow this up to the whole zone. Now we can actually play with it. And just like you said, with steering, now we suddenly might have a little bit different phenotype profile or not phenotype, uh, terpene profile. We might have a little bit different bud structure formation. So, uh, how, how helpful are you finding data even when you can't necessarily totally control a plant in an irrigation zone like you've got a mixed zone are you finding that data very helpful in you know advancing your strategies in how to deal with this particular cultivar and shortening up that time because to me it used to seem like three like you said three runs that was a bare minimum just to get it up to like initial selection are we sure pre-production type run you know what can we actually expect and i've noticed with this data after I run, you know, several different strains through similar conditions, I can at least sometimes look at how they behaved and go, okay, I'm going to more closely match this strain with these other ones for a production run. Or, um, Hey, I got this certain morphological expression. We had stretched out buds. It turned out weird. Let's look at the data. Maybe we can explain that. Maybe we just missed, you know, some of our cues on which to, when to switch our steering strategies or, you know, something super simple, like, Hey, our EC dropped out part of the way through the run, you know? We're not just going to throw this strain out because we messed up. Now we have the eyes to see where, you know, those very impactful changes were made. And I don't know, I find in pheno hunting so often um, I've been involved with throwing away something that was probably pretty awesome. We just didn't have enough data Could've to actually a make a good choice. Yeah. And, and a winner, you always argue about it too, right? You have like, oh, you have a couple ounces hard, of samples. Yeah. A month later, everyone's like, everyone's like, we should have kept number six, but we threw away number two. Like, "Ah, (laughs) you know, like, ah, not the number two. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I think uh, for me, at least trying to do pheno hunts and stuff is so much easier, especially when you're trying to scale things. Right. Cause that's another valuable part of that. Like sometimes you'll run into a semi-dwarf plant or something that just doesn't give you the size or structure you're looking for, but quality's there. Okay. That first round, we might pick that and throw away 15 others that were like, you know, could have been real close and had 90% of what this one had, but actually been nice for us to grow, you know? Yeah, that's always the hard part is throwing out the unwanted, the unwanted ones or the unwanted ones. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> unwanted ones. Um, yeah, you never really know until, you know, you can see some stats on them. And a lot of it is the visual, you know, you got to put your eyes on them and see what, what the heck is going on. And someone might run good stats, but not be what you're looking for. Absolutely. I think Jason, and I see that all the time. There, there are plenty yeah. of situations where you can look at a graph and go, 
Can you show me a picture? It looks like it should be good, but you're talking to me. So that it might be, be a problem right, there. You know? And then it's like, okay, now we got to dive deep. It isn't your irrigation. It's something else we're looking for, whether it's VPD, uh, VDC, or, you know, having a particular deficiency in one strain. You know, I've definitely seen a lot of growers deal with that where they'll butt their heads against the wall. Just like, man, I cannot figure out this strain. It's like, hey, with data, you can at least elim eliminate a bunch of these possible variables. 100%. You eliminate a lot of that human error, yeah. you know, by seeing exactly what the heck is going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I feel like other than that, someone's going to have to make the call, like personally, which plants aren't going to make it through. So that's, that's tough emotionally too. Um, <laughs> so Ellie, can we, let's talk about your brand for a little bit. Um, yeah. Like, how, how, uh, how are you guys uh, doing out, out there at East Coast Cure? Like what kind of uh, products are you guys putting out? Yeah, so um, here at East Coast Cure, we're definitely a flower forward company. Um, we have two, we have one, currently one medical shop um, active. We have uh, one medical pending, one adult use pending, a lot of other fun projects that, you know, are pending <laughs> but um yeah so brand wise you know quality forward that is the constant thing that we're chasing um and we're constantly tweaking things in our garden as well based on consumer feedback so say the bud is not as dense as people like you know we're constantly looking at ways to improve what we're doing and, you know, with making changes does come some, you know, ebbs and flows, but, you know, keeping on our brand, just keeping quality driven forward. We, you know, we're not required here to test for really anything on our medical program, but, you know, us as a brand, we 100%, we test any product that we put out to market, you know, just for an ease of mind. and. You know, it's definitely an extra expense, but just keeping a nice, clean, quality product that people can consume is our main objective. Um, we have some very loyal, long time. We've had our medical store up here running for about four years now, and we're constantly taking feedback on cultivars that people are wanting to see. Um, but I find just keeping consistent quality is definitely what keeps people happy. Ellie, so what what are the what are the patients out there really feeling in terms of quality? Like what's popular? What what resonates with folks? Lost you for a second. Sorry. No, all good. Yeah, I was just curious to know, like, when you talk about quality, what is quality to the customers and the patients out there? Like, what is it that they like? What are they into? Man, so quality, it's a very um, personal, you know, perception of what quality is. I think um, in our in our criteria, quality is clean. You know, you're not getting pesticide-ridden products. Um, and then our patients, I just see, just, they just want consistency. If you're just keeping that quality on the shelves, um, and quality in terms up here, we have a very um, 
well-educated clientele that shop with us. So if something is slipping, um, say it's not burning completely white, like my patients know they can, they, people reach out to me personally, you know, so we stay on top of all of that. Um, I would say quality is kind of driven up here by terpene profile. We have a very, like I said, educated clientele up here where they want the stuff that is going to smell and taste and hit effect wise. Um, or they're not going to come back and they're not going to shop with you. And that is terpene profiles are huge. Terps are life. And um, we are constantly striving for ways to improve our terpene uh, levels Cure is another big factor when it comes to quality. You don't want to crunch your weed up. You don't want to have it sizzle down to nothing. Um, you know, only using top nugs and pre-rolls, you know, all that sort of stuff. We don't do any like in-house processing, um, BHO or anything. We really try to strive on solventless techniques, um, all that sort of stuff to keep like a clean, you know, top tier type product. I was wondering what the top strain is in your, on your menu right now. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't say blue cookies. <laughs> um, I need to try blue cookies. I'm gonna have to plan a cross country trip for that one. Yeah. Um, that's just, in my opinion, like our flagship medicinal strain um, that we've crossed with our entire genetic library, like I mentioned. But um, out now, currently, we have a strain called Blackberry Panacotta, which is blue cookie crossed with ice cream cake. And it is phenomenal. It's that heavy hitting indica. It's that body effect feeling like you're going to feel the medicinal effects from this one, um, we also, uh, what we have blue truffle, white truffle cross with blue cookies, another fan favorite. Um, like I said, I could go on and on about what genetics we got going, but, um, that one, we recently developed a strain called blue milk, which is blue cookies cross with cereal milk. So it's a play on, you know, a certain Star Wars movie with you know blue milk, uh, cereal milk, another great strain. So we've crossed stuff with a lot of other genetics that people are already familiar with, and then just added that like heavy hitting blue cookies phenol to it. Just beautiful, just beautiful stuff. It sounds delicious. Okay, in a few minutes, we're going to start uh, answering in some uh, visitor and attendee questions here. But I was just curious, like, so you described some amazing genetics on your menu. You have an informed client patient base that like will let you know if things oh, are yeah. consistent. Like what, talk to us about the process of dialing all that in. Like what were some of your, would you say biggest challenges as you were trying to crop steer towards these particular outcomes? Regarding patient. Yeah, regarding, yeah, getting that consistency that the patients are looking for, those terpene profiles that they want. Um, yeah, what does it take to get there? You know, I think we've built a repertoire with our patient 
um, clientele because our flagship, our flagship shop here, we only sell what we grow and products that we produce. Um, I think we have successfully dialed in where people just come and expect our product to always be great. And um, we're lucky to have a shop that always sells their own product. And, you know, I'm always open to feedback from all my clientele, but I feel like we've gotten ourselves here in four years where people know they're going to show up and they're always going to have a consistently great product. Um, and we've been able to steer that, you know, with the help of Arroyo, keeping those strains consistent. We have a couple um, strains that we keep on our rotation constantly. One being the blue cookies. We have a couple other more sativa leaning strains, but um, I think after the past three, four, I think we've been using Arroyo for about four years now, three and a half, four years. Um, I feel like we've gotten that dialed in now where that consistency is no longer questioned. And we just have a steady stream of patients that just know what to expect. It's what every can of brand wants. You guys are doing it. You guys put in the work and now it's paying off. Oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to have a question. A lot of times, you know, we get a lot of growers on this conversation. I, I just wanted to ask a little bit about you know, what's what's your daily life look like? Do you have a, a lineup of tasks that you go through every day, or, or is it is it a new adventure on on what you have to tackle that day? Um, my current day to day is a little bit, you know, a little bit more padded. Uh, we're currently in the midst of three different state applications. Um, so right now, whereas a year ago, I was definitely more heavily in the cultivation side. Uh, today, I'm in the midst of three different applications that are pending, uh, two different store build outs, one different um, equipment distribution company, mainstream distributors. So we've sell services like, you know, Arroyo and, um, nutrient lines, lighting, all that sort of stuff. But, um, so now today, my day to day is a little bit more crazy. I'm needed everywhere. <laughs> I'm needed here. I'm currently at our grow facility. So I try to pop in here. I try to pop in at least at our retail once a day. Um, and then we're about to online our mainstream distributors as well this spring. So, or later spring, I guess. But, um, so right now I'm holding a lot of different directions, but you know, the one constant honestly is being able to check my phone. No cultivation is good <laughs> or know what those alerts are, know what the highs and lows are, what's going on there. That's like, honestly, cultivation is the one side and that's my background is cultivation just knowing I can be in all these different spaces and I can quickly do 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 and see what's going on in my grow room has allowed us has, has allowed me to be crazy <laughs> in all these different areas but um yeah right now holding a lot of different directions and I wouldn't want it any other way 
Ali, you are really holding it down. We're going to move on to live questions just one more minute, but um, I wanted to ask you, like, we don't get a lot of, I haven't met, I think you're the first, uh, one of the first female um, COOs of a cultivation that I've met and just, you know, we're closing out Women's History Month and, you know, just what's that journey like for you kind of being in an industry where there's not a lot of women? Yeah, I mean, I honestly can't recall working in another position where there were fellow females until the past year or two, um, you know, kind of working in the shadows, it was always very male dominant. Um, but you know, for myself, just, I ask a lot of questions and I make myself known and get myself in there. And, um, I want to be a force we reckon with. Let's figure it out. Let's move per- perpetuate your own desires forward. Nobody's going to um, sit back and give you a handout. Just work your ass off, position yourself into, into areas where you'll thrive. Most importantly, um, finding where your strong suits are and attack it. <laughs> That's all I can say is, um, you know, I was in a big, big warehouse down in Massachusetts and I was only female. They were like, we don't even have a changing room for females. I was like, that's all good. But, um, you know, three fast forward three years later, I'm, you know, put myself into an admin position, running a cultivation facility and anything's possible. Put your mind to it, pursue it. And, uh, don't sit back and wait for anything to happen for you. That's my main thing. And I, always, I'm a question asker. If I don't know something, I'm not going to sit back and wait for someone to like finally answer my question. I want to ask you, I'm going to pursue it. Don't be scared. Just, just go for it. I love it. Wired up over here. Nice work, Ellie. Okay. Y'all ready for some live questions? And Ellie, we love to hear when our growers are on. If, if you have any feedback, um, please do chime in. But um, I think Mandy, we've got somebody over on YouTube with a question. Yeah. Yeah, it's popping over on YouTube. Ellie, thank you so much for that. Um, be sure to give us your expertise uh, on these if you have that too. This question is about foxtailing. Um, Taylor wants to know, I recently had some foxtailing on day 35 to 40 of flower due to a pH problem since uh, that has since been corrected. Do you have any recommendations on fixing foxtails, foxtails at this stage to help tighten the flower structure? We're currently on day 41 of flower. I mean, okay. Yeah. Oh, go yeah, ahead, then. Ellie. I want to hear what you have to say. Jason and I get to talk way too much. Um, so my first thing when it comes to diagnosing anything in a flower is going back and seeing what the environmentals are, um, seeing what your drybacks are, seeing what your nutrient uptake is. Um, if your plant is already um, going to be compromised, it's not uncommon that you would see foxtailing. If your VPD is off, um, you know, you're already not supplying your plant with the adequate grow conditions. Um, for the most part, I mean, foxtailing is also can be a very genetically driven attribute to a cultivar. Um, so it's hard to say based off that question what exactly the issue would be, but I would definitely want to you know, I want to meet this person and be like, what else is actually going on? Um, so 
there's a plethora of attributes that could or problems that could be happening in your grow. Um, step one is always monitoring your environmentals. What is uh, your light intensity? What is your, I don't know what lights they're growing in, DLI, uh, PAR, what is their EC, what's their runoff? Um, those are all sort of things that I would pre-check before trying to diagnose what a plant issue is. Um, if you're not providing the correct environment, your plant isn't going to produce adequately. But I think fox telling is usually a light intensity or light type issue. It could be a feed type issue or it could just be genetically predisposed to foxtailing. Um, but I like to hear what the experts have to say as well. I think you covered most of the bases there, Ellie. Uh, the first question I ask people is what's the surface temp on those buds? Usually every time. And where, where is it at? If it's on your, you know, your apical, your apical nug and it's way up two feet above the rest of the canopy and it's 94 okay. degrees on the surface of it there we figured it out but i think what you touched on is really important um we got to look at the environmentals and we have to look back in time you know we have to look at every component that went into producing this crop up until this point and then also accept that all right if we've got foxtailing you know we've got genetic factors involved obviously some plants are going to respond with that much easier than others to stress if you're pheno hunting and it happens some of them might just do that genetically. That's an undesirable trait that typically we have selected away from. And then the next thing to look at is, you know, what, what is that overall bud structure like? You know, if we've got foxtailing accompanied by also, you know, that classic loose larfy bud, there's probably not a lot you're going to get that run to do to tighten back up because at that point we've actually increased the stem distance between each of the flowers by stretching those individual flowers like the bracts by stretching those stem cells out and those are never going to shrink back down. The best you can do is try to correct, I think, any environmental situation you got going on and ride this round out without making it any worse. And then, um, you know, you probably along the way really learned how to grow bud. That's going to be great for washing for hash and making rosin out of or something. Right. <laughs> but, you know, like you said, we always got to go back and look and then plants don't heal. So get fix the problem and don't repeat it. I think that's the biggest lesson there. Yeah. I'd be curious what the genetics are too. Mm -hmm. It's that's typically a, the biggest indicator on stuff like that. Yeah. Taylor, if you have any more information, please do send it over, but go ahead, Jason. Uh, it sounds fortunate enough. Like they might've caught it here pretty early in the cycle, you know, day 35. And if they were able to correct it quickly, um, you know, there is a chance that if they can get those buds to bulk up enough, that it's not going to be quite as visible. Um, they can you know, over cover over that fox tailing. As long as they do some good ripening, those pistols will, will turn orange on them as well. Yeah. Or that's amber. a good, good point, Jason. If you can get it to finish up and look okay. Foxtails are pretty easy to trim off. Um, you know, it's not an ideal situation, but that's another one where sometimes the stuff that bothers us as growers doesn't always necessarily affect what the consumer thinks about it. You know, sometimes if you have a situation that you had to remedy and those slightly yellow leaf tips are really bothering you, that happened way back in, you know, week three and it's day 43 now. Well, learn from it and move on. But, you know, sometimes you've also got to have, uh, enough value of your own mental health, I think, to know when to step back and say, okay, I need to not let this bother me right now. That's very important. 
Super important. Um, Taylor actually came back with some context. Uh, RO broke and we forgot to switch from P, uh, switch from pH up to down for five days. Oops. Seeing foxtails throughout canopy. Yeah, that's not ideal. You yeah. really stress nope, that plan out. Great. <laughs> well, at least the rest of your environment probably is, you know, relatively okay. If that's the only thing that broke and leaf temps and everything else are in line. It's those identifiable problems that actually are so much easier than when it just happens out of the blue. So true. Great. Uh, yeah. Thank you guys for your questions over there on YouTube. Um, I will pass it over to Keisha to start with some of our Instagram questions we've gotten in this week. Awesome. Thanks, Mandy. Just a reminder to everybody who's on with us live. We have three experts on today, so be sure to drop your questions wherever you are so we can get those answered for you. All right. Paul wrote in with a question. What if I'm seeing a higher EC in the substrate after runoff than before irrigation starts? Week three, day one, running six P1s right now, really only hitting runoff on the last one. Some advice for Paul. So six P1s um, runoff on the last one, that's probably just about right. Um, usually that's what we're classifying as P1s is irrigations up until runoff. Um, as far as EC and the substrate higher after runoff, um, I mean, it just depends how long after. Um, you know, so typically when, you know, we're running irrigations at three to four EC, usually our substrate's going to be a little bit higher than that due to generative stacking, um, due to a little bit of salt accumulation in that substrate. Um, typically when we irrigate, uh, that's going to drop a little bit down closer to our feed irrigation EC. Um, it usually is going to rise after that. Uh, unless we're significantly underfeeding or we have really, really hungry plants. Um, it's it's going to gradually rise after that last irrigation and some runoff. Yeah, it typically should, you know, as we're pulling water out of the block, unless that plant's uptaking so much salt that it's, you know, really affecting that ratio as we drive back, it should go up. Um, the other scenario that Jason was describing, you know, I'll call it aggressively underfeeding, um, is something that actually a lot of people did do habitually for many, many years before, uh, you know, we kind of approached the idea that, maybe cannabis can tolerate a higher root zone EC than what we had calculated was going on with other crops like tomatoes, strawberries, and stuff like that. So if I were to give someone that did not have a lot of commercial growing experience, especially over the last five years, but let's rewind the clock about six years. If I went to someone, especially I'll use the medical market, Ellie, because that's, I know a lot of people in California that came out of that. They were buying liquid nutrients at the store, mixing at a fairly low EC feed and actually pushing, you know, especially using things like when cocoa came onto the scene. All right. A lot of people went, okay, I can throw a 30% perlite mix in here and really control my EC by pushing a lot of runoff every day. So we're just rinsing it either up to our 2.2 to 2.5 input or back down to that, pushing that excessive runoff. So, you know, we really want to look at what was that value at actually, if you started at a value that's below your feed EC, then we're probably looking at underfeeding. If you started at an in-root zone value, that is, I mean, at your wettest point below your feed EC. Eventually with that generative stacking that Jason was talking about, our baseline EC at the wettest point of the day should still be a few points above even a 3.0 input EC. Definitely. Yeah, sounds about right to you too, Alia. That's been your experience. Yep, 100%. By the way, Ali, how did you feel about that transition? 
Because I'm sure you went through that in your career going from a more conservative approach with EC to like nowadays where, you know, 10 years ago, we'd have been like, whoa. <laughs> oh, Lord. If I told my old boss five years ago, we were feeding at a 3.0, he would have turned around and been like, oh. I mean, people are still shocked to see, you know, high ECs, but uh, I've always been a huge advocate and proof is in the pudding. And uh, so what we get a 11 plus EC runoff, et cetera. I mean, I still get DMS all the time asking me out, asking me about like, is this crazy to see a 10 plus EC in certain situations? And absolutely not. I mean, obviously we have our parameters that we want to keep it in within, but um, if you told an old head <laughs> growing that this is, or most of them still use PPM versus EC is a whole nother thing, but um, telling them 3.0 ECC or EC is uh, shocking and mind boggling. It was a few years ago, but um, I live in a world now where we're, we're, we're high feed. One of the things that I just find so cool about using our sensor systems to achieve efficiency is now, you know, rather than running, pushing run, lots of runoff to stabilize our UC, like Seth's talking about, or being worried about the economy of using lots more fertilizer at a higher EC, uh, we can run that fine line and we can mm -hmm. allow those salts exactly. to accumulate. We can feed it just the right EC to achieve where we want to be. Exactly. That's why this power. technology, yeah, that's why this technology is so, in, it's invaluable saves you money in so many different aspects. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay. The, I think YouTube is on and popping, right, Mandy? Going to send it over to you. Yeah, you know it is. Um, so we asked you guys a question over there. We put a poll out. What type of cultivars are you growing? So we listed some of the primary flavor classes of cannabis. So we listed sweets and dreams, OGs and gases, tropicals and floral, and Jackson hazes. And OGs and gases had 67%, so they won, and tropicals and florals came in at second at 33%. So thank you guys for answering that. It's very interesting wow. stuff. Wow, yeah. yeah. I feel yeah. like tropicals and florals are really big in the Bay Area where I'm at, but maybe that's just what I'm buying. So interesting. everyone on the call, which one are you smoking? I, I lean a little more towards the floral, but it just depends. What my comment is, I've noticed uh, the longer... A market has existed in California is kind of a weird example because the medical market goes back so far, but the more educated the consumer base gets, um, I find a lot of them tend to move away from like the gas here, you know, I mean, roll it back 10 years, you crack open an eighth bag and it gasses out the whole room and you're like, whoa, this is good stuff, you know, even though it smells like poop, um, <laughs> it's just strong. And now we've kind of come to the point where it's like, oh, okay, we've all tried that. And now there's this whole world of more uh, exotic strains out there that people kind of find their way into once they have access to a dispenser that actually has, you know, a pretty big breadth of selection. And when any time it first rolls out, those gassy strains are always at the forefront, right? It's just kind of like the the purple thing is going on for a while. <laughs> now it's kind of dying down Purple a little bit. But yep. I know. remember when Michigan first opened up, they were all about that. You're t I think you're onto something there. Um, I don't know what class this is in, but 
I'm hitting something called Uncle Snoop. If you guys know where that is from or what that's crossed with, I'm in Texas. So that's some context for that. I'm hitting my home grow stupid fruits and it's, it's fruity. Um, but I have to say, and I'm very drawn to like more fruit forward, um, stone fruit forward stuff. But when I get my hands on some gas, it's very exciting. <laughs> I'm in for a good time. Yeah, right now we just did a, you know, hunt. I'm a sucker for orange turps. People either love it or hate it. We did a blue cookies, orange cookies, and we have a few different phenotypes where one is leaning like orange cream sickle push pop, like creamy turps, and one is like fresh, fresh, like orange zest. Like I'm like right there. Like give me all the orange turps, but on the East Coast with like, in New York coming online, I'm seeing a lot of hazes, a lot of sours. I'm seeing a lot of that stuff being asked for now. People want that, like that old school, that funk. The classics. People, people want those sours back. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that's what people are currently buying, but like that's the trend that I'm seeing by some real connoisseur types over here on the East Coast. Um, People are wanting to bring back that old school, that that New York sour diesel, all that, all that sort of like that funk, that sour. So all those nice like you know, ten weeks strands. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to hear. I'm I'm the Jackson Hayes in the group, so I don't even have to pass a joint. All right. Well, come on over. We got you. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love this discussion. Okay, well, that actually is perfectly along the lines of a question I was going to ask you. Um, so this is for everyone in the room. Baby Got Drybacks wants to know, what are two of the most different strains you've seen? So this is like, like whether they grow totally differently, whether they're chemically very different. Um, I would like your take on this. Is this to me or to everyone? Or just to, <laughs> okay. just to anyone in the room. Um, we've just recently started growing out jet fuel gelato and that's a heavy drinker, heavy drinker. She's talking about irrigation strategies, right? Well, yeah, like, so, um, so looking at plants, um, I'm really interested in seeing like different types of plants and how they're either chemically different or grow in totally different environments. Um, yeah, I'd like your take on that. Oh, well, a lot of cultivars grow extremely different um whereas like right now we're currently growing jet fuel gelato we have we just produced that out of our tissue culture lab and um this is a new one for us to put into production round and we're finding that she likes to drink she likes to drink a lot <laughs> um whereas you know some of our other cultivars are definitely you know they're not as heavy drinkers as they are require way less irrigation irrigation um hits but um yeah all cultivars are a little bit differently and that's why it's really nice to have that data to see which each one wants to drink what each one wants to do um is that a like, that jet fuel a little bit shorter too ellie not a terribly yeah, tall it plant is, yeah it is growing a little bit shorter yeah so it's it's like kind of shocking sometimes and you're like oh if i look across my room some of these plants are seven feet tall this one's only five yeah. feet tall but it's drinking more huh that's weird yeah yeah, exactly. You just said that's how she's been and she's sucking it all up. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I love that question. Um, we are getting more questions over on YouTube, so I'm going to keep rolling with those. Um, Taylor came back with another question. I keep my environmental sensors a few inches above my canopy. When the sensor falls below the canopy, my humidity goes up to 10 to 15% and temp drops about five degrees. If I'm concerned about pathogens or maintaining a healthy VPD measurements in this region, uh, are these two questions? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, let me start the second question again. If I'm concerned about pathogens or maintaining a healthy VPD, measurements in this region seem more relevant than what is happening right above the plant. Where should my sensors be? So, yeah, right, right at the canopy. And this kind of comes down to airflow and canopy management. Um, and th- these are the reasons like our recommendations are always trying to keep that sensor within a foot of the top of the canopy. Um, using that reading to assume that's what your plants are feeling means that we have to have sufficient airflow and good canopy management in order to uh, disrupt the localized uh, environment, which is created by transpiration from the plants. So when our stomates are transpiring, they're cooling the leaves down, they're increasing the humidity around those leaves. So good airflow can help the uniformity across our room and good canopy management can make sure that that is consistent over the run. Yeah. When you're trying to map this out, I mean, honestly, shove that sensor down in there, start down a foot, two feet into your canopy and start mapping out what your heat stratification looks like. And also, you know, remember anytime we're talking about this, just like Jason said, we're, we're really looking at what's going on at the leaf surface of the plant, that micro environment, that one millimeter around the leaf surface is really the, the environment that the plant actually lives in. And us adjusting the rest of the room parameters is just trying to dial in that tiny micro environment. So there's two things to look at, you know, number one is like, get a laser thermometer or flare gun and see what your actual leaf surface temps are you know, start dialing it in there and then go, okay, if I'm talking about my Arroyo climate station, yeah, I'm going to use that for precision mapping to try to figure out exactly what it is in the zone I want. If I have a uh, HVAC sensor that's running controls in the room, I want to use something redundant like my Arroyo sensor, map out the room and say, okay, what does this reading mean at the point where my HVAC sensor is? And is it practical to necessarily lower my uh, control sensor down into the canopy? Maybe not. I just need to know the differential so I can actually operate the room correctly. Yeah, and a really good thing to do as well is make sure that you're mapping that difference across timeframes. So often we'll see that the room behavior is different when we've got lights on or lights off versus maybe we've got dehumes running later in the cycle, maybe uh, AC demand is changing, those offsets can can definitely change uh, based on what's going on in the room, what time of day, how big the plants are. Yeah, just what's the room look like? I, I know most of the rooms that we run into, I'm, Ellie, you can comment, you've been in a few grows. Usually about a year or two into it, that room's not exactly the same as when it was first built out, especially in terms of dehues, equipment's broken, been replaced, upgraded. So each of your rooms might have a little bit different differential that you have to work off that might hit at different points in the grow cycle just because they're slightly different sized. One's got two Quest 600s and an Andon 220. The other has all Andon 310s, but it has four of them. Like, you know, we've got so all these different factors configurations. So many go into regulating yeah. environmentals 100%. Yep. And, and every, every grow you go into is going to be at some stasis of improvement, right? You're never going to find one. Like we've, you know... I love seeing the new uh, cookie cutter grows. Days look they're great, but a year or two in, they're usually not so cookie cutter anymore. Yeah, like yeah. it might work. <laughs> yeah. 
like ideally it should be it should work but no elevation there's so many factors yeah and then just site specific differences you know like water quality has been a huge one people are dealing with because hey we're pushed into these zones that are you know generally like oh an old industrial zone or generally away from procuring an easy clean water supply and oftentimes not far enough out of town to necessarily have your own water rights so that's a tough, yep. tough situation to approach. And, you know, at that facility, you might be pretty limited because you had to spend so much money on water treatment that, hey, we're chilling for a year or two on these other facility upgrades. We're doing the bare minimum because, well, if we don't put our money into the water, we don't have a product. So. So if you guys are working in a retrofitted building, I feel like there's a couple of y'all. Um, yeah. Keep a. Nice. Keep- Keep tabs on that environment. It's changing. Um, that is it for the questions over on YouTube. So, Keisha, I'm going to throw it back to you. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks, everybody over at YouTube. So, Ellie, we got, we're, we're going to wrap up the show, but I just, you know, we like to ask when we have growers on, like, it's been a rough couple of years for the industry. There's a lot of transition happening. So, any advice you'd like to give to your fellow cultivators out there going forward? Man, uh, yeah, you're definitely right. It's been um, an ebb, of, ebb and flow in this industry. I mean, I'm here on the East Coast. Y'all are all more West Coast. Um, but I think we all share that common ground that, you know, the market tanks and thrives. And that honestly, is just the nature of what most of us signed up for. <laughs> um, most of us are used to this, living in the shadows, doing this sort of stuff. and we're resilient people. I've never met so many people in one industry that are such hard, dedicated workers. And I'm super blessed to be a part of this industry. Um, but stay on your craft, never stop learning. Um, the second that you shut yourself off to learning more, um, about your craft is with, that's when you're going to start failing. Um, work smarter, not harder. If there's an investment that you can make into a system, you know, such as Arroyo or investing into yourself, you know, you're going to see that pay off in the long run. Use tools that are here to help you and, um, you know, stay vigilant, stay on your craft, stay with what's happening. You know, I always like to make the correlation between chefs and growers, people get very stuck in their ways. And, you know, this is the one way to do it, but keep an open mind, just stay a lifelong learner and, um, you know, apply what you learn, get rid of what doesn't serve you. You know, we're all here for a common interest in my opinion. And, um, if you want it, you'll get there. And like I said, just, keep pushing the boundaries of what you're capable of because the tools are out there. Ellie Coyne, COO, East Coast Cure out in Maine. Thank you for dropping those nuggets of wisdom and thank you for being on our show today. So good to have you. Love chatting with y'all today. First live podcast. Love Arroyo. We're big supporters of y'all. And this was um, amazing. We're going to have to have you and Dylan back. Like, let's have you guys both on the show next time. Dylan, Dylan's behind the camera right now. Clowning. <laughs> He's in the room with you. <laughs> so you literally never mind, to Maine. <laughs> never mind him back here, but no, I'm it just kidding. Um, such a good show. 
Yeah, no, awesome to have you, Ellie. Thank you so much, Jason and Seth. Thank you for hosting yet another awesome session. Mandy, I couldn't do this without you. Thank you for co-moderating with me. And shout out to our producer, Chris, for making the magic happen behind the scenes. Thanks, everybody who joined us today. Uh, our office hours, we do this every Thursday. The best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. To learn more about Arroyo, feel free to book a demo with us. Uh, one of our uh, experts will walk you through all the different ways it can be used to improve your cultivation production process. In the meantime, let us know if there's a topic you'd like to cover on a future session of Office Hours. You can post questions anytime via the Roya app. Feel free to drop them in the chat. Send us an email at support.aroya.metergroup.com. Send us a DM. We are on all the socials. We record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's discussion. It'll also live on the Arroya YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, Please spread the word. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. All right. Bye, y'all. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.